This is Black by Black, a community news program from WPPMLP 106.5 FM, where we explore issues affecting the Philadelphia area with news reports from members of the community. I'm Roxanne Logan. And I'm Felicia Kasher. Tonight, we'll hear stories from our community news reporters about Trans Day of Visibility, funding for the arts, and what happens now that the government has ended some of the extended food and health benefits it had offered during the pandemic. But first, Pennsylvania's primary election is May 16th. This year, voters in Philadelphia will cast ballots for mayor and city council. But there are also a number of judicial elections where voters will make their picks for new judges and also decide whether judges should keep their seats. I recently spoke with Tamika Washington, a judge who was appointed to the bench last year and is now running to keep her seat. Tamika and I have known each other since law school, but I started the interview by asking her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she became interested in law. So I live in Mount Erie. My husband and I, we are deacons at Sharon Baptist Church and we have four young men. What prompted me to, well, first become an attorney was a close friend of ours was wrongfully arrested because of mistaken identity. He was at least released before trial. But that just spurred me on to think, you know, I got to be a part of this process. I mean, what if he had come before a judge and the judge had not released him? I knew that I wanted to be a part of that process. So I went to law school to help people. Where did you go to law school? And what year did you graduate? Temple Law, 2004. And since 2004, what have you been doing? I was a city solicitor for about four years where I helped children who were neglected and abused to either find better homes or to be reunited with their parents once their parents were able to do so. After that, I turned right around and helped parents who were wrongfully away from their children. I helped children or teenagers who just were in need of guidance and eventually able to be independent on their own. I was also on the wheel. The attorney wheel is where you are appointed by the court. So I had my own firm. I helped people in criminal court, so people accused of crimes people who had child support issues. And I also had private clients in custody court and a number of other courts. I really pride myself on the fact that I help people who are discriminated against because of their race, sex, or disability. And one of the shining moments was when I was able to protect each and every person who voted in the 2020 and 2021 election by asking that a vendor not have your private information. And that case is still pending, but I'm really proud of the work that I've done in that. I'd like to switch to the work that you've been doing for the past year or so. You were appointed to the bench. Can you tell us about that process? Yes, so I ran in 2021, didn't quite make it, but in the interim, I was appointed by Governor Wolf. And how that happens is someone retired early. So his term was still going on. So judges have a 10-year term. This particular judge, his term was not up until January 2024. So they needed someone to sit in his place. So 
what happens is the governor nominates someone and then the Senate Judiciary Committee voted unanimously. So all together, they all voted that I should be in. Additionally, when there was a Senate roll call throughout the entire Senate, I was voted in 99 to 1. Additionally, I was the only African-American that was appointed during that time and the only black person appointed during that time. So I sit in criminal court in Philadelphia every single day. I hear from police officers. I hear from complaining witnesses. I hear sometimes even from defendants and their families. And now you are running for judge. So tell us what that process is. You were appointed. Why would you need to now run for judge? I'm basically on what I call borrowed time. The judge that I took over for, his term is up January 2024. So I have to run this year to start January 2024 for a term of 10 years. So that would be my own term that I would have basically call it the voters permission. Pennsylvania is only one of eight states that require judges to be voted in. And so I am asking the voters permission to allow me to continue this job. It is a very difficult job, but it is a public service. And I have devoted over 90% of my career to public service. I feel like this is the next step. And what have you learned since you've been on the bench? I realize it is truly a step up as far as your accountability to society. So as an attorney, you're of course accountable, but as a judge, everything I do, every movement that I make can be interpreted by somebody in that courtroom. I can look to the left or look to the right, and that may be interpreted as, well, she cares or she doesn't care, or she's interested or she's not interested. And so I make sure to watch what I do, and I make sure to listen to people that come into the courtroom and the parties before me so that they can understand that they have had a fair trial. They may not always agree, but they know that they were heard. And what is your biggest accomplishment so far? What are you most proud of since you've been on the bench? There was a particular case where the young man, it was his first brush with the law, And he decided to plead guilty. But the defense attorney, just him educating me about his client before I sentenced him, it was very moving. It was compassionate. Everyone in that room was moved by what was going on. This was a young man, and he made a stupid mistake. And he admitted to that mistake. And I was able to show him compassion. I was able to talk to him for a few minutes, you know, of course, on record in front of everybody and let him know that I cared about him and that I would be giving him the sentence that he needed, but allowing him to do the work that he needed to do as well. He had found employment even in the interim of being arrested and pleading guilty, and he was doing very good things. He just had a bad day. He had a slip up and That allowed me to not just be someone banging the gavel and allow this man to pay his debts to society and not just be punitive to this young man. So that was something that I was very proud of. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me here.
The Pennsylvania primary election takes place on May 16th, and Tamika Washington is one of 16 Democrats running for judge of the Court of Common Pleas in Philadelphia. Voters can choose up to 10 candidates in that race. No Republicans have filed to run in this election. Pennsylvania voters have until May 1st to register to vote in the May 16th primary. You can check your voter registration status or register to vote at pavoterservices.org. Lawmakers in the Pennsylvania House have introduced three bills this year that would limit the rights of young trans people. They are part of a wave of more than 450 similar bills introduced around the country in 2023. Last week, on Day, Trans Day of Visibility, people gathered in Harrisburg for a rally on the steps of the state capitol building. Block by Block reporter Robin Markle attended the rally and brings us this story. Now, before we begin, we want to let you know that this story includes a reference to suicide. Last Friday, at a rally for Trans Day of Visibility in Harrisburg, trans activist Rhea Morningstar addressed the crowd. We are who we say we are, and no amount of dehumanizing, scapegoating, or intimidation will erase us. It never has. We are transcendent. The rally was organized by the Pennsylvania Coalition for Trans Youth and the group Trans Advocates Knowledgeable Empowering, also known by their acronym TAKE. I spoke with Day Pope, Director of Civic Engagement for TAKE and a co-founder of the PA Coalition for Trans Youth. The PA Coalition for Trans Youth got started in 2021 in response to a bill that was introduced here in Pennsylvania called HB 972, where they were trying to ban trans kids from participating in the school sports and school facilities that match their gender identity. And we're so grateful that that bill did not get enacted into law in Pennsylvania, but we started organizing to oppose that bill. And what we found in the meantime is we've been organizing across the state and in a lot of school districts including Hempfield, Pencrest, and Central Bucks, among others. There have been, at the school district level, similar attacks on trans kids that are starting to spread, led by groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as hate groups that are targeting school board level LGBTQ policies in our state. So we are organizing with parents, neighbors, concerned citizens, trans youth themselves to make sure that it's not a state where we're going the way of Florida and don't say gay. We're going the way of Texas and Alabama with attacking trans kids. We don't think we should go that way. Day explained that there are two primary focuses of the coalition. One is working with legislators like state rep Joe Hohenstein to introduce statewide legislation protecting trans children at public schools. This would prevent individual school districts from passing anti-trans policies. The coalition also holds public events and demonstrations to create space for trans people, their families and allies to gather in community and challenge misinformation about trans people. Day says the groups chose to hold a rally for Trans Day of Visibility because it's a day of advocacy and celebration for trans communities. Most of the reasons we're coming together are tragic 
hosting vigils, Trans Day of Remembrance. They're talking about how much pain our community is in, but the Trans Day of Visibility is more of a chance to celebrate and play music and have positive affirming messages of love and acceptance and say, we exist, we're a part of your communities, we are your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your partner, and just have a little bit more of that fun, uplifting side of what it means to be in the trans community instead of the many challenges that we face. We have tried to have a group that can speak to lots of different aspects of why we need this legislation and where the community is right now. And we've also had crafts for the kids and fun, uplifting music because this is very much a family-oriented event and an event where we are trying to advocate for policy change, but we're also just trying to share a message more broadly to trans kids that are feeling so bullied and attacked right now that there's a bunch of people around Pennsylvania that accept you, that love you, that support you, and that will fight for you. This sentiment was echoed by Jasmine Henderson, an activist from Philadelphia who spoke at the rally. It was important for me to show up here today because our trans kids are under attack, and that's not acceptable. I don't care who it is that's coming for us, but when you come, I'm going to be there to, to stop it. And There is no reason why our youth should be demonized and penalized just because they're trying to live their best life. I, as a trans elder, am lucky to be alive and not have committed suicide because I couldn't live the life that I was supposed to. So yeah, I'm here to protect these kids. I will be here to protect these kids and I will do whatever it takes to make sure that they're safe. Rally organizer Day Pope offered this advice for trans people and their supporters who are feeling fearful. We are in such a place and a time in which it can be really frightening to be LGBTQ at all, but especially trans being kind of on the chopping block the most lately. And so for trans folks who are afraid, we have to do what we can to take care of each other and take care of ourselves. So if sometimes that means seeking out more support than we've had in the past by going to support groups, seeking out therapy if it's accessible to us, seeking out time in nature, things that refill our tank, so to speak, I think that's so important right now. For folks who are allies or who want to be allies, I really can't stress enough how much we need your help right now. Our community is maybe 3% of the population. So when we are fighting for our rights, we're always going to need loving, caring people who understand that all of us have solidarity together and that an infringement on one person's human rights is an infringement on all of our rights. Even if you're a little hesitant and you think, I'm not sure that I know enough about the community or I'm not sure I understand everything, that's okay. This is such a inflection point and we need your help and we need your support. So if you're not part of the community and you're seeing what's happening, get involved however you can in the fight and you don't need to be perfect, you just need to show up. Our 
arts programming in the city can provide a positive outlet for young people. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, the city of Philadelphia has made extra money available for arts and culture organizations. Block by Block reporter E. Marie Lambert wanted to find out whether arts and culture funding would continue to be a priority in the years ahead now that funding for many pandemic-era programs has started to dry up. To find out, she spoke with Philadelphia City Councilman Isaiah Thomas. I'm the chair of the Education Committee on City Council. I'm the vice chair of the Children and Youth Committee. And I know that you've always been passionate about youth and education as well. Yeah. So those committees seem to suit you. Do you think that funding arts programs in the city have an impact on our youth and how? Well, I think funding arts programs in our city has a huge impact on our youth for a lot of different reasons. Just in general, you know, investing in arts is always something good to do because Philadelphia is a city of talented folks and there are a lot of talented young people in the city and we want to cultivate and maximize that talent and you know put them in a position where they can use it to the best of their ability. Outside of that, it also puts us in a position to make sure that young people's time is occupied in a positive way. At the end of the day, when you look at where we are as a society, young people are very different than what they have been in the past. And when you include the dynamics that make them that way, like the pandemic and like their access to technology and information, it puts us in a position to be able to say that they can do things that no other generation has ever been able to do. So I'm always a fan of investing in the arts and putting young people in a position to be able to recognize the talent that they have and hopefully cultivate and maximize that talent. It puts our youth in a position where their time is occupied in a positive way. It puts us in a position as a city and as a society to be able to benefit from their gifts and talents. What are some of the bills and proposals have you brought to city council surrounding the arts? So I think that the answer to that question really lies in the work of the Arts and Culture Task Force. When COVID hit and we had a lot of issues that presented themselves, one of the things that we decided to do was to listen to folks across the city of Philadelphia and the conditions that they were in and the impact that COVID was having on them and their industry. And we sat down with the arts and culture community and led us to create the Arts and Culture Task Force, which ended up working for several months to provide a list of recommendations to help the city think through how we manage the arts and culture community. And um, we did end up seeing historic amounts of investments. We've seen levels of inclusion that we haven't seen in the past. And there were several other highlights. But two examples I'll give is we created the Illuminate the Arts program. We gave away $3 million over two years, $1.5 million each year to local artists, mostly brown and black artists across the city of Philadelphia to help them get through the pandemic. And that was a unique process as well because the Arts and Culture Task Force was a part of the selection process. So you had average everyday people helping to determine who were the folks that were in the most need. And that was during a time when a lot of people were struggling. Um, outside of that, we also created the nightlife economy position, which is beginning to think about what it looked like to expand how we can have more culture-related activities in the evening which not only helps the economics of the city, but helps the overall vibrance, um, the experience, and what it means to be a Philadelphian. When these artists got these grants, 
you know, especially during the pandemic, were they doing specific things for the community or for programs or was it funding for them to continue to work and do things so they could get paid? So the people who got the grants basically just had to have a track record of showing that prior to the pandemic, you know, whatever their specific craft was, that they were doing it as a profession. So if you were a DJ, if you could show a track record of gathering revenue as a DJ, if you were a painter, if you were, you know, they were grants to help offset some of the financial issues because during the pandemic, we couldn't convene, which means most artists couldn't work which means they couldn't provide a living for themselves. And so at the end of the day, every profession didn't necessarily have the proper type of means of income to put them in a position to really, to receive stimulus money from the federal government. So we tried to step in and help supplement where there were some holes. And that was an example. It's not something I campaigned on. It wasn't supposed to be a focal point of me going into office, but it was a demographic who were really struggling during the pandemic and, meant a lot to the city of Philadelphia. So we tried our best to step up and support and fight, especially for those who traditionally didn't get anything. And, you know, while we couldn't help everybody, we were proud of them. Some people. Okay. So are any of those funds um, or funding sources or grants still in place? If everybody feels like it's a good investment based on where we are as a city economically, we'll definitely go another round. But, I, you know, it's too early to say. So... With that said, what is the temperature of city council and how do you think that they will vote? Do you think that they will be in favor of funding more arts programs? I think coming out of the pandemic, multiple opportunities we've shown the city of Philadelphia that this council has an appetite to fund arts programs. Uh, So at the end of the day, when we do this advocacy and do this work, we want to try our best to advocate that the administration disperse the dollars with the equitable lens. So the appetite is there, absolutely, to be able to put us in a position to hopefully deliver some great things for the citizens of Philadelphia. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, As always, I appreciate all the work you're doing in city council. Um, I appreciate the conversation. I thank you for all you do as well, because you definitely have been fighting and riding for our children for a long time. So I appreciate you. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as the Food Stamp Program, started making extra payments in 2020. Over the last three years, federal rules have made it easier for low-income people enrolled in Medicaid to continue receiving those medical assistance benefits. But now, many of those extended benefits have ended. Block-by-block reporter Yannick Marie spoke with Lydia Gottesfeld from Community Legal Services to discuss what that means for families in our area. Gottesfeld is managing attorney for the Community Legal Services Health and Independence Unit. Here at Community Legal Services, we provide free legal representation to low-income people across Philadelphia. The SNAP program is nutrition assistance. So prior to 
the emergency allotments. Folks who were found eligible for SNAP could get a certain amount that would be issued monthly. That amount is based on a couple of things. How much income is coming into the household, how many people are in your household, and there are other deductions for things like housing costs, like rent or mortgage, child care costs, or regular medical expenses. The medical assistance program, which is Medicaid or health insurance for low-income people, prior to the pandemic, also was sort of business as usual. You can be eligible for medical assistance if you're under a certain income threshold. That income threshold can change if you have a disability or if you're pregnant or a child, but you don't have to be one of those things to qualify for medical assistance. And so pre-pandemic, you go in, you apply for this benefit, um, and you're found eligible. When the emergency allotment policy was enacted, what it meant is that people who were receiving SNAP or food stamps would get an extra payment, a boost in their SNAP to help them afford food during the pandemic. When it was first implemented, if your family was not receiving the maximum level of SNAP benefits for a household your size, then you got extra SNAP to bring you up to that amount. And so what it meant was that many, many households received this extra boost of SNAP. At first, people who were already at the top didn't get an extra boost. And those were the lowest income families who really needed extra support during the pandemic. So community legal services, along with our partners at Morgan Lewis, actually sued the federal government to change that policy. And since then, every SNAP household in Pennsylvania has been getting the extra boost in SNAP. Unfortunately, we don't have a cause of action right now to keep these emergency allotments in place. The emergency allotments ended last month, meaning that families and others receiving SNAP will only receive their SNAP payment at the beginning of the month that they're eligible for. That second end of the month payment, which is the extra boost, is gone. But if that emergency allotments told us anything, it was how important SNAP is as a resource for people. Our main message is that families should make sure that their information is up to date with the county assistance office so that they're maximizing the amount of SNAP that they can get. Your SNAP grant is based on a bunch of stuff. It's not just your income and your household size. It's also housing expenses, utility costs, childcare expenses. So what our message to folks is make sure your income is up to date, make sure your housing expenses are up to date with the county assistance office so that you can be getting as much SNAP as possible. We also have a resource on our website, a SNAP calculator, where people can enter their information to get an estimate of around how much SNAP they should be getting so they can know, oh, I should be eligible for more. I should reach out to the county assistance office. The other thing we're suggesting is connecting people to the Coalition Against Hunger, which has a lot of hunger resources related to food banks. There's actually some big changes happening related to the end of the pandemic for medical too. So for the past three years, the policy that's been in place is that far and wide, you just get to keep your Medicaid, whether you're really eligible or not. Even if the county assistance office knows, oh, you got a job, you became over income, you still got to keep your Medicaid. And that policy is also changing as these pandemic policies come to an end. So starting April 1st, the county assistance office will be able to terminate people from the Medicaid program again for the first time in nearly three years. And so although the income limit for the general category of medical assistance that most folks are eligible under is lower than SNAP. Sometimes the income limits can be higher depending on if you have a disability and you're working or if you're pregnant or a child. 
So I would say even if you think, oh, I got medical assistance, but I, I might be over income now, I would urge you to still fill out your renewal paperwork when it comes in the mail and submit it. And the county assistance office should be able to assess your eligibility for these other programs as well. But before they can cut anyone off medical assistance, they have to send you that renewal packet. So we're really urging people, A, to update their information, their addresses with the county assistance office so they get the renewal packet to begin with, and B, to fill out those packets and submit them when they do come. If you are terminated from medical assistance and you still believe you're eligible, file an appeal right away. And we at Community Legal Services can represent folks in those appeals. If you're looking for help getting access to Medicaid or SNAP, you can come into our office at Broad and Erie at 1410 West Erie Ave on Tuesdays or Thursdays or give us a call on Mondays or Thursdays at 215-981-3700. For our general intake... For almost all of our other legal issues, you can come in to our office downtown or in North Philly on Mondays or Wednesdays and give us a call on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Black by Black is produced by Kathy Brown, E. Marie Lambert, Robin Markle, Yannick Myrie, Laura Rosenbach, and us. Felicia Kasher and Roxanne Logan. Yannick Myrie is our board operator tonight. Brad Linder is radio news managing editor for WPPM, and Allison Durham is WPPM's radio production and programming coordinator. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of Block by Block featuring more stories about issues affecting life in the Philly region. And you can find past episodes of the show on Philly Cam's SoundCloud. <laughs>